Welcome to Up to Date Talk, our weekly podcast featuring one of our up to date contributors discussing a recent publication featured in our What's New section and its implications for clinical practice. Our discussant today is Dr. Lena Gans, a cardiologist and director of electrophysiology at Heritage Valley Health System in Western Pennsylvania. I'm Dr. Nancy Sokol, general internist and senior deputy editor at UpToDate. The article we'll be discussing was published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology in 2018 and is entitled Digoxin and Mortality in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation, First Author Lopez. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Gantz. Thanks very much for inviting me. My pleasure. So the paper we're going to be reviewing uses data collected during a trial of anticoagulation in patients with atrial fibrillation, or AF, and this trial was set up to investigate whether there was an association between use of digoxin and mortality in patients with AF. Before getting into the trial itself, let's discuss a few aspects of uh, the pharmacologic rate control of um, atrial fibrillation and of uh, digoxin as a drug to do this. So my first question is, what is the rationale for slowing the ventricular response in patients with chronic atrial fibrillation and a rapid heart rate? So I tell all patients that I'm treating with atrial fibrillation that we have three objectives in treating them. The first is to prevent strokes, and that's typically done with anticoagulant drugs. And now some newer procedures in patients who aren't candidates for anticoagulant drugs, we're really not going to talk about that today. The second part of the treatment, and the one that we probably spend the most time on, is improving symptoms and quality of life. And that can be carried out through either a rhythm control strategy or a rate control strategy. In rhythm control, we try to maintain sinus rhythm, either with antiarrhythmic drugs and now more commonly with ablation procedures. In rate control, we allow the patient to have atrial fibrillation, but we try to slow the ventricular rate primarily through drugs that slow conduction through the AV node. So you mentioned this was for symptom control, but not all patients with a rapid rate are symptomatic, is that right? Correct. And then the third part of our agenda, even in patients who have no symptoms or minimal symptoms, is to slow the ventricular rate. The reason for that is patients who have excessive ventricular rates for long periods of time are at risk of developing a tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy. Do we know what excessive heart rate would be? It's a really good question. We don't know how fast and how long. We have some patients who have atrial flutter with rapid rates for a very short time who come in with substantial cardiomyopathy and other patients who seem to get along with excessive rates for very long times with normal left ventricular function. And because we don't know what the cutoffs are, we tend to slow the ventricular rate in many patients, even in the absence of symptoms. So assuming that a rate control strategy has been chosen, what's the target heart rate that you aim for? Another very good question. Uh, despite years of clinical trials, we really don't have a good sense of what the target heart rate should be. The best study was done in Europe and was called RACE2. This was published in 2010 and randomized patients to what they called a strict rate control or a lenient rate control strategy. These were patients with persistent atrial fibrillation. They weren't really required to be symptomatic, and it looked at endpoints like cardiovascular mortality, heart failure hospitalization, 
stroke. How do they define strict versus lenient heart rate? So the target for strict rate control was a resting heart rate less than 80 beats per minute and a heart rate with moderate exercise of less than 110. The lenient rate control patients, on the other hand, had a uh, target heart rate of less than 110 at rest. Okay. And the choice of medications to, to achieve rate control was left to the treating physician. And this was a randomized but open-label trial. And what did they find? What they found was that there was no significant difference in outcome in the patients randomized to strict rate control as opposed to lenient rate control. In fact, if anything, there was a trend towards better outcomes in the patients with lenient rate control. The biggest limitation of the study, though, was that the patients who were randomized to lenient rate control were pretty strictly controlled. So the average heart rate in the lenient rate control group was 85. Not 110. Not 110, compared to 75 in the strict rate control group. In your clinical practice, what rate do you try to achieve? I typically target an average heart rate in the mid-80s based on the results of the RACE2 trial, but my goal is to get there without making the patient feel worse than they did before I started. Okay, and when you are treating such patients pharmacologically, uh, what classes of drugs do you try? We have essentially three groups of medications that we use, um, and they all affect conduction through the AV node in some slightly different ways, but the outcome can be the same. So we use beta blockers. Uh, we use the non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. Which are? Verapamil and diltiazem, and we use digoxin. Okay. And how do you decide which drug to turn to? Frequently, we look at what other issues the patient has. So if the patient has coronary disease or even cardiomyopathy or congestive heart failure, there's good reasons to have them on a beta blocker. So in that case, it might be doing double duty for us. Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, uh, if patients have hypertension, um, we might choose a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker. In younger patients, we might use a calcium channel blocker because they tend to be less tolerant of beta blockers. Beta blocker, okay. The third is digoxin, which we tend to use less and less frequently for two main reasons. One is that it tends to be less effective in slowing the ventricular rate than the other drugs. And secondly, because of concerns that it may be associated with worse outcomes. Which brings us to the study by Lopez. So let's turn now to a discussion of the paper. First of all, who were the patients who were enrolled in the study, and how did they do the propensity matching since this wasn't a randomized trial? It wasn't a randomized trial for the right. purpose of exploring digoxin and AF. Right. So Aristotle was a randomized trial that compared apixaban with warfarin uh, as anticoagulants in patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. And the patients were patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation with at least one risk factor for stroke. And these were the CHADS2 risk factors because this was carried out in the CHADS rather than the CHADS-VASC era. What we're talking about now is a retrospective look at the patients in the study who were treated with digoxin. Right. And how did they do the propensity matching? So there were actually two analyses that they did. It turned out that nearly a third of the patients in this trial were taking digoxin at baseline. So they first did what they called a prevalence analysis and compared the outcomes in patients who were taking digoxin at baseline with patients who weren't. 
They then did what they called an incident analysis and looked at a smaller number of patients who were not taking digoxin at the beginning of the study, but then were started on it during the study and compared them to other patients in the trial. With similar clinical characteristics. With similar clinical characteristics. So for each patient newly started on digoxin, they matched them with three patients in the trial who had similar uh, socioeconomic, demographic, and clinical characteristics. And what uh, outcomes were they looking at? What was the primary outcome? So the primary outcome was all-cause mortality. Um, They also looked at um, cardiovascular mortality, sudden death mortality. Okay. And what did they find? What they found was overall, in the prevalence analysis, digoxin use was not associated with a higher mortality compared to patients who weren't taking digoxin. What they did find, though, was that digoxin levels, which they had in approximately three-quarters of the patients taking digoxin at baseline, were correlated with outcomes. And this is unique to the study because previous studies didn't have digoxin levels available. Is that right? Correct. There had been previous analyses uh, and even meta-analyses, some of which suggested that digoxin use was associated with worse outcomes in atrial fibrillation patients. Some showed the opposite, but none of those studies had digoxin levels, and I think that's what makes this very, very important. So what was the digoxin level that seemed to be associated with uh, increased mortality? Patients who had a digoxin level greater than 1.2 had a higher total mortality. For patients with a baseline level between 0.9 and 1.2, there was a trend towards a higher mortality, but it did not achieve statistical significance. For patients with a baseline level less than 0.9, there was no increased mortality. And 1.2 usually wouldn't be considered a level of digoxin toxicity, right? No, it would, it would definitely not be considered toxic. It would typically be in the therapeutic range. And was there a linear correlation between digoxin level and mortality? So there really was a dose-response curve, um, which I think makes these results very compelling. And what about the patients who were new users of digoxin in the study? That was very interesting. Patients who were started on digoxin over the course of the study had a higher mortality than patients who weren't. Now, we don't have digoxin levels on those patients. Also, even though the investigators did a very good job of matching newly started patients with patients who weren't started on digoxin, we can't exclude the possibility of some inherent bias as to why some patients were started on digoxin and other patients weren't. And did it matter if the patients were in the hospital or were ambulatory? No, that was very interesting also. The authors actually did a sensitivity analysis, and when, and when they looked at only patients who were started on digoxin as outpatients, they saw the same increased mortality. Um, anything surprising about these findings? I think primarily that levels that we would consider not terribly elevated were associated with worsened outcomes. The other thing that was interesting in the prevalence analysis was that it didn't seem to matter whether patients had heart failure or not. Uh, A similar result was found. Okay. So I believe that the paper reported that worldwide uh, about a third of patients with atrial fibrillation are currently taking digoxin. Is this consistent with current guideline recommendations or current recommendations in up-to-date regarding use of digoxin for atrial fibrillation? So the most recent guidelines, both in the United States 
published in 2014 in Europe in 2016, give digoxin a class one indication for use in rate control in patients with atrial fibrillation. I think digoxin use has fallen substantially in the United States over recent years because of concerns raised by prior studies, uh, the fact that it's been on the beers list uh, as a medication to avoid in older patients. But it is used substantially worldwide because it's been available for a very long time and it's it's inexpensive. So if you had a patient taking digoxin and they were doing relatively well, is there a safe level? I think that the study informs us as to what the safe level is. In my patients who are already using digoxin and are clinically stable, I typically check digoxin levels as well as renal function at least once a year. And is that the frequency that you think ought to continue? I think that's quite reasonable. Um, I wouldn't uh, fault physicians who want to check more frequently based on the results of this study. I've typically in the past been targeting a digoxin level of about one or less. I think as a result of this uh, important study, I'll lower that target to less than 0.9. And I assume that if you have a patient doing well in digoxin, you probably would leave them there if you could control their, their level. But would you ever initiate digoxin in a patient with AF? I think there's still a place for digoxin, but in a relatively small segment of patients. We tend to use it in patients in whom we can't get good enough rate control on a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker Do you alone. add it? Or? So it can be added to a beta blocker, a calcium channel blocker, or even a combination of the two. Um, we sometimes also use it in patients with heart failure. And I think this study tells us that careful use of digoxin seems to be safe but we have to be very careful. Right. So we're not ready to extinguish use of digoxin, but just to be cautious about using it and using it when other alternatives are, are not relatively available. Correct. I think this this reinforces the idea that it should not be the first choice in all patients. Um, it's further confirmation of a very narrow therapeutic window for this medication, but it does inform us, I think, as to you know what's safe, what's not safe, and, and how to use it in as safe a way as we can. Great. Well, that's very helpful. And thank you so much for sharing your understanding of this with us today. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you would like to get more information on any of these studies or other recent updates, please visit uptodate.com and look at our What's New and Practice Changing Updates sections. We appreciate your feedback. And please leave us a review on the podcast service you use to access these podcasts.